And I didn't know anything about venture. So I was learning all those things as I went, which was very frustrating and emotionally draining to get no's and maybes and kind of just be dragged along by people you think should be writing you checks because that's what their title says they should do. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Morgan Devon. Morgan quit her job in Silicon Valley when she was just 24 to start her own media company, one that filled a void in media coverage after the death of Michael Brown at the hands of police in 2014. Today, she's the CEO of Blavity, a media company based in Los Angeles that's created by and for Black millennials. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Thanks for having me. So excited. Before we start talking about work and your career, we like to start these interviews with the most important stuff, our lightning round, to get us warmed up. Are you ready? I'm ready. Quick questions, quick answers. Let's do it. First job on your resume. First job on my resume. Well, you know, resumes are tricky because you don't put all your jobs on them. So on my resume would probably be into it as a product manager. Well, what's your first job not on your resume? Well, my first real job was working at Toys R Us in high school. (laughs) What is your most recent job on your resume? Most recent job on my resume would be either an angel investor in gold or I'm on the advisory board for American Airlines and a couple of other companies. I've added that to my resume recently. What is a secret hobby or skill? I am a painter. So I paint in watercolor and um, acrylic. And yeah, I'm not too shabby. Wow. We do not have the same skill set. I'm very impressed. What best describes your work day? Finish this sentence. Working nine till? I'm a work from seven to four. So I'm definitely done by four o'clock. My brain just turns into mush. Hard seven to four? Yeah, I wake I'm an early bird. Wow. Okay. But I like that you're done at four. Inbox zero or inbox a thousand? Inbox a thousand. I mark things unread when I need to do something like a task. Oh, see, you're much more organized than me. I don't even mark it unread. I just let it sit. Walk us through your morning routine. Morning routine. I wake up um, usually with the sun. So depending on where I am, that just depends on when the sun comes up. Do you use an alarm? No, I don't use alarms. I know. I'm I'm a freak of nature. I don't understand. Were you always like this? Yes. I've always been a morning person, so my body naturally wakes up between like 5.30 and 6.30. Now, if it's a gloomy day, I might sleep into 7.30 and 8, and then that's when I could get in trouble, (laughs) but that's very rare. Wait, but what time do you go to bed? I go to bed between 10.30 and 11. I want to change this show to talk about how we get Morgan to sleep more. (laughs) I sleep. No, that's, that's about the right amount of sleep. Yeah. Hard disagree. Hard disagree. What is the last show you binge watched? Manifest on Netflix. Okay, before we go on, what are your thoughts on Manifest? Because I also binge watched it. You know, I have strong feelings. I definitely have strong feelings. I feel like they, the writers started to just like 
make shit up at the end. Like, I'm like, what? I don't understand now what's going on. The beginning, I was like, okay, this makes sense. But yeah, I feel like it started to lose consistency. I feel like we were promised and you lost and we didn't get it. All right, let's let's jump into our convo while we're here. I want you to take us back to 2014. You're sleeping probably like not enough, but what was your life like? Where were you? What were you doing? So 2014, I was sitting in my cubicle at Demand Force, which was a company that Intuit had purchased. It was a startup that they bought that they were integrating. And I was working as like a business development associate and I was spending my nights and weekends working on Blavity. So Lavity launched in July 2014. I started it with Jeff and Aaron and Jonathan, my co-founders, a couple months prior. And what we wanted to build was a community for Black people. And we were focused mostly on video content. It started off as a newsletter, and we were curating a newsletter that went out every week to our friends and family. We were curating content. And then from there, I built a website. And then one of the things that happened in August of 2014 was that Mike Brown was killed, as you mentioned in my intro, and I'm from St. Louis. So it was a really weird moment for me where I felt very helpless and hopeless. And I felt like I wasn't able to contribute to my city because I was in San Francisco and I was working in an industry that was very disconnected from anything that was going on and what I felt like was the most important thing in my life. And So that's when I started to figure out, well, how can I live in my purpose and be of service to my community through my skill set, which is technology and building platforms and bringing people together on the internet? You know, I am four foot 11 protesting, like I'm not really going to make a difference, you know, being on the ground, putting my body on the line that wasn't going to be my unique contribution. That wasn't how I was going to be able to really leverage my skills to make an impact. And so Blavity was one of the things that I could build and control that was going to have a direct input by giving people access to information, building community, and signal boosting the messages of activists and people on the ground all around the country who are fighting for Black lives. One thing that really resonates with me is you talk about finding your way to give back to your community. And I think it's interesting that you saw what was going on. I'm assuming you saw people protesting and you were like, that doesn't feel like the right thing for me. Let me find another thing that does. So much has happened since then in this world. But I think that there is, we see again and again, a desire to get involved and people not knowing necessarily how to do that or feeling like there's only one way that is like the right way to get involved. What you did ended up changing your life and contributing in in such a huge way. Can you talk a little bit more about that part of, of the decision that you made to start Blavity? Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, my energy, it was so loud. Like I was so encompassed by wanting to make an impact. And, you know, Blavity had already started. There was no like soul to it yet. It was like, I know that there's a problem in information and media and content for Black people in this country, for the millennials and anyone coming after us. But when Mike Brown got killed, it was like, this is the soul. This is the why. This is the I'm willing to be broke for seven years and maybe fail and fail very publicly over and over again for seven years because 
even existing is going to make an impact. And that's something that I'm intrinsically motivated by, emotionally motivated by. And I think entrepreneurship and being a founder is very trendy right now and caring about Black people is also very trendy right now. But this is something that my team, you know, our early employees, my co-founders have dedicated our whole lives to. And so it is interesting, you know, now being able to be scaled up and have an organization and have the power and the distribution to make an impact. It's very different than us when we were just a newsletter and a little Twitter account (laughs) DMing people. Now we can partner with NAACP and UNCF and politicians and the White House. It's like I'm watching myself looking down, right? And it's like, you did it, you know, but also like, you're tired. It's been seven years. So there is a bit of really wanting to make sure that the group of Blavity, the mission of Blavity lives and exists in my employees and in the work that we do every day. And then it's not as attached to Morgan Debon or not attached to the founding team. And so we've spent a lot of time in the last two, three years building that capacity. I want you to describe the workplace culture that you were coming from before leaving to, to start Blavity. I was really struck by reading some previous interviews that, that you've done where you mentioned that when you transitioned your hair from straight to its natural curls, it was actually a discussion in your office. First, like, I'm so sorry that had to be a discussion. But second, can you just walk us through like what what happened? Yeah, there's so many microaggressions that have happened, even just in my very short period of time working for someone else. And in hindsight, even repeating them, I'm like, yeah, that was bad. But they didn't mean it. You know, it was good intent. And I was one of very few Black women in the entire campus and certainly one of the few Black people that was not a in an admin role. In the building, I think there maybe was one or two other Black people in the entire building that I worked in. Definitely, I was the only Black woman. And so I, my hair was short and I had had a relaxer, but I was transitioning it into being curly. And if you've ever seen someone transition their hair, it's, you know, it's not the cutest thing ever. Your hair's got different textures. So I would straighten it occasionally. I remember I straightened it and then it went back to curly. And they're like, oh, is that you? I didn't recognize you. I'm like, there is no other little black girl in this 3000 person campus. Do not say things like that. That is not possible that you did not recognize me. Right? Like, come on. Right. And just little comments like that, that are meant to, I think, intend to acknowledge or connect with that actually wind up being embarrassing. And, you know, I think it's tough. This is probably the first time that this group of people ever really had to interact with a Black person or a Black woman in a professional, you got to work with me every day, you know, setting. And I think they wanted me to feel comfortable and feel like, were really open. It was like an exciting thing, right? But how they did it all the time wasn't uh, what didn't hit the mark. So on one hand, in hearing, you know, even just like a snippet of that experience, it's like, well, looking at it now, it's obvious that you were meant to start Blavity and take this journey. But as we know, it's a whole different thing to have an idea and to be passionate and then to actually quit and start. What was it like in that moment of actually knowing this is not just going to be my passion? This is not just going to be something that is part of what I'm going to do. This is going to be something that I put so much on the line for. Yeah. You know, 
quitting your job at that young of an age, I was 24 when I started the company. There's a lot of privilege to it because I didn't have the responsibilities Mm -hmm. or the wisdom of like a 30-year-old quitting their job where you have kids and perhaps a partner and family responsibilities. We say that all the time, that we like quit when we had the luxury to do it that we had to be responsible for ourselves. But like that was a a luxury to only have to be responsible for yourself. That's right. And it's like worst case scenario, we like moved to our parents' basement, right? If we failed, which isn't the case when you are a fully functioning parent, (laughs) right? So I have to first acknowledge the privilege that I had to be able to take this type of risk. That being said, it was still a moment in time in which, you know, I was on a wealth growth trajectory for myself where I was making, you know, an entry-level salary in tech that was significant. It was like, you're paying me what to do what? Like, this is nuts. To learn, basically, you're paying me to learn. (laughs) So to take myself out, out of that temporary wealth gain for the potential of something bigger, for the potential of a delayed gratification of wealth and information and access, it is a tough decision, right? Because you have to really believe in yourself. You have to really believe that it's going to be worth that short-term discomfort of eating boiled eggs and oatmeal and having roommates in downtown San Francisco and walking places because you don't want to spend your cash flow on Ubers and Lyfts. And, you know, there's a lot of decisions that you make as an entrepreneur living in a city like New York or LA or San Francisco hustling. And it's very uncomfortable. But I also think that uncomfort is you don't want to be comfortable because you need to move fast and you need to have discipline. And I actually would prefer to be uncomfortable for a short period of time so that I can be very comfortable (laughs) later in life, right? And I think that's the trade-off in entrepreneurship that so many people are not seeing because on Instagram, all you see is the jets and the people in Martha's Vineyard and South of Italy taking vacations, working from a beach. Okay, cool. But what was that person doing 15 years before, 10 years before? They were sitting in a place that was not Instagrammable, like me. And yeah, you don't see that part of the journey. So it was definitely a sacrifice, but luckily it you know, paid off. I want to talk about raising capital because I think, and, and I'm going to say this, like we actually share some mutual investors. And so I, I was really excited to, to talk to you because I feel like we probably have a lot of similar war stories and then also like ended up with some of the same outcomes. And so we've talked very openly about our, our journey with fundraising and that it was not a pleasant experience. And I'm just really curious, what was it like for you to start raising money? You know, I was very reluctant to raise money. I bootstrapped for the first year. I knew all the data, which tells you that less than 3% of venture capital goes to women. I think it might even be less than 1% these days. And then, of course, even a fraction of that is to Black women. And so I knew that the odds were against me in so many different ways. And I was also very much, I had a chip on my shoulder. I didn't want to be a token. I didn't want people to take a meeting just because they had to, because they couldn't say no to the Black person, but they had no intention of investing. And I I did not want to waste my time. Time was the one thing that I was very precious with. And I'm also an introvert. So I wasn't interested in like just meeting people to build a network in Silicon Valley. I was like, I don't want to do that. I only want to work with people who genuinely care about this mission and to genuinely care about this audience which wound up being a shorter list, actually. So I started with raising money from Black VCs because I felt like they would get it. They definitely got it, 
but they also weren't in the position of power at that time. A lot more VCs own their own funds and are decision makers now. But at the time, there weren't that many that had uh, check writing ability. And I didn't know anything about venture. So I didn't know, you know, Jane from Joe. I couldn't tell you who had a fund and who was just calling themselves a VC and didn't have a fund. I couldn't tell you the age of the fund and if they actually had money left. So I was learning all those things as I went, which was very frustrating and emotionally draining to get no's and maybes and kind of just be dragged along by people you think should be writing you checks because that's what their title says they should do, right? I know a lot more now and I would never make that mistake, right? And I think for anybody listening to this who's starting their fundraising journey, it's really important to know a venture fund, how it works and what their outcomes are and the different sizes of venture funds. You know, there's a difference between a corporate venture fund. We uh, share GV, Google Ventures, on a board, Mm -hmm. actually, and as a portfolio company of theirs. And they're a corporate VC. Very different than like an independently wealthy ex-entrepreneur like the Kapoor's, who's also one of my investors, right? But their LP is themselves. So they have different incentive structures. So just understanding where people are coming from, I learned that the hard way. And I hope that people don't have to make that mistake. Now, fast forward, once I did decide to raise and I got my first set of checks, I've been oversubscribed ever since and people have been trying to hand me money forever, (laughs) right? But that's also a challenge for me sometimes because I feel like people only want to bet on the safe bet, right? So Blavity all of a sudden became the golden egg, the safe bet, the safe Black business to invest in, the safe Black girl founder to invest in. So you can say you have a Black girl founder in your portfolio, but then everybody wound up just having me in their portfolio. And that's not cool either, right? Like that's not a future I want to be a part of. But yeah, you know, it was an interesting journey for me. I'm curious for you guys as well. You know, we've raised about the same. We haven't raised as much as our media peers. We've been very conservative with how we've grown our businesses. What was your experience with that first round of funding? Did you guys want to raise money straight out the gate? I mean, it was a terrible experience. I think we did not really have the ability to bootstrap, but we also had no choice but to bootstrap. So like we went into credit card debt. First of all, like we came from working in media where like we made no money. Half of our time there, we were hourly, hourly employees. I didn't have health insurance. Like we, we were not like set up in a way where we could really survive much longer. So we like had the very honest conversation of we're doing this, but we're going to go into credit card debt. And we did Wow. like sit here today being like grateful it worked out, but also very cautious of like, I don't want to like advise anybody because it's such a personal decision. And like, what if it hadn't worked out? I don't know what I would say. What I will say is that we intentionally, now that we've done four rounds of funding, like over nine years, are like very happy that we haven't raised as much as a lot of our peers have. But I say that now, whereas early on, we would have wanted to have raised as much money as our peers were able to raise. We would have. And I think I'm glad we didn't for lots of reasons. Yeah. I I actually think that's a good point because, you know, a lot of people who are listening to this might be in the same boat where it's like, yeah, same thing. Could I have raised $40 million for my Series A like some of these white boys do? No. (laughs) They weren't going to give me that check at good terms. I would own nothing of my company, right? You know, I told Danielle this story and it's actually, um, I want to ask you this question. I was with some founders the other day and they were sharing a story about pitching and they told me about one like very well-known company that we all know of that's founded by a bunch of guys that they did not have 
a pitch deck at all or a data room. And so for those who are listening, when you raise capital, you have not just one deck, but you have many decks and you redo that deck a thousand times. And then when people actually are like interested in giving you money, they go through what's called like the diligence phase where they look into like maybe a Dropbox or something like that, that has all of the data to back up everything you're saying about your company. I would say weeks of my life have been lost to this process if you add up all the hours. Oh my gosh. And so I hear about a bunch of guys that haven't had to go through any of that and raised what we've all raised times a gazillion. Okay. And I like my stomach, like physically hurt when I heard that. And Danielle's did too. When I told her, I, I know my blood pressure is going up. Even I just saw your face. This is, you know, an, a podcast, but like your face just dropped. Cause you know, exactly what we're talking about. And my question to you is like, you did do a deck. We did a deck. We did many a decks. How did your pitch change from when you first went out and like, you're like, here's what I'm doing. And then to ultimately when you got money in. Yeah. Well, my first deck was the full vision. I was like, I was very clear on what I wanted Blavity to do and how I wanted us to serve the Black community across multiple channels in media. It was really ambitious. I did it, but it was really ambitious, especially back then. And so people thought I wasn't focused. It was, it was also at the time when Silicon Valley was very much like, you need to be niche, 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 niche. You need to focus, 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 and do one thing really, really well, right? That was like the prevailing advice at the time. At the same time, they were also like, pick a market that's really, really big. <laughs> like, okay. Right. And I was torn between those two pieces of advice. And so I think that my pitch was sloppy because I was trying to pitch to please other people instead of what actually I knew I wanted to do. And so when I changed my pitch to be like, this is the plan, this is phase one, I'm raising for phase one. I want it to be big and here's how we're going to get there. But don't worry about that because that's going to change with the market and with technology. What's important is this is the audience and this is the first get like thing of it. And this is the first milestone and this money will help me get to this milestone. When I got really specific about how I was going to do that um, and I had proof, we had a million monthly unique visitors. I had a very detailed financial model. We had IOs, insertion orders and RFPs that were huge that I could not fulfill because we didn't have enough traffic for it. For those listening, RFPs are requests for proposals. So if you're working with advertisers, it's basically how you're going to monetize. Right. But if you don't have enough scale or inventory, then you can't actually even respond to those RFPs. So basically I was showing them, if you give me $5, I'm going to turn it into 10. I already have the demand. And because I was a woman and a black woman, I knew I needed to have that kind of proof that there was a business here that could scale and that I wasn't going to be able to just, you know, walk in there and say, give me money with no deck and no (laughs) data room. Yes. So you get Blavity off the ground. It's been incredibly successful. And then we go into the world in 2020. You saw, and not just you, I mean, everyone saw a sharp decline in ad revenue and you had to take a pay cut. How'd you get through it? And when I say get through it, I mean two things. One is how did you get through running the actual business in that time? And then secondly, how do you continue to coach a team through a, a very unstable environment? 
Yeah, it was a tough time in February, March, and April. It really, for me, started in late February because that's when Seattle shut down. So we followed kind of the West Coast shutdown before the rest of the country, which was good because my team, they were about two to three weeks ahead of other companies, meaning like they were planning, they were buying hand sanitizer, they were uh, figuring out their work from home schedule earlier than other people. So when the scramble really happened and my team was already like knew that they were going to be working from home. So I'm grateful that we made, we were decisive early. And then, you know, the first thing that I did was bring all of our directors together and I kind of released control in terms of like, I know I cannot do this alone. I know that there's no amount of like just black girl brute force that's going to make it through this potential risk to the business. And I need all hands on deck. I need to be as transparent as possible with my team and I need to trust them to also do the best work of their lives and be the best leaders that they can be. And that was really different for me. You know, we were operating with so much change and fast growth in the early parts of the business that I never felt like I could fully let the reins go because as we were getting bigger, it was like, if we fail, it's a big fall, (laughs) right? And so I was scared to fail. At this point, I was like, yo, I need everybody take the reins because it's going to require all of us to be operating at our best to get this done. And that's been really incredible because now we're still in a pandemic, but the economy has shifted back to higher levels. In fact, I would say to like where they should have been last year. And now we have the best operating team we've ever had. I've got leaders, incredible people who now trust each other because we've gone through something together and we made it through on the other side. We actually had the worst quarter of our lives in Q2 of last year and then the best quarter of our lives in Q3. And so we actually wound up giving everybody who was furloughed a job offer to come back. We paid back the wages for everyone who was still with the company who lost wages when we did kind of the the salary adjustments. We gave everybody all their money back before the end of the year. And we wound up being profitable last year as a media company, right? And so it's like, man, Q2 was tough. But I'm grateful that we went through it as a group because we came out much stronger. I want to hear about you as Morgan, not as you as Morgan, like CEO and founder. Like, how did you handle all this? I really focused on my own health. I knew that like if I would get sick that no one would make the decisions. I felt like if I'm out then there would be a, a level of delay on our ability to move quickly and adjust to the market. So I was pretty self-quarantined, very much isolated in my apartment by myself for a couple months, which was tough mentally. So, you know, I did the walks, I did the Calm app, I did as much as I could to try to stay reasonably sane. But ultimately what I wound up doing was moving to the beach. So I left downtown LA and moved to Hermosa Beach so that my environment was much calmer. Downtown LA was also in chaos because of the protests with George Floyd and the the fireworks and the helicopter. So it was also like a bit of a mental war zone for me every day working. So I needed to remove myself so that I could actually focus on my work and not the chaos and the sounds and the energy around me. That was the most important thing that I did. So part of your mission with Lavity was to create a blueprint for other Black entrepreneurs to create their own organizations. Can you talk to us about how you guys are are doing that now at this scale? Absolutely. So the first thing we did was build out AfroTech. So AfroTech is a tech conference, um, but really it's winding up being this huge community of 
innovators, of entrepreneurs, of people who aren't your traditional background all the time of getting into tech or being in tech. And it's a safe space and a, a place for storytelling. I remember being a Black girl in St. Louis, like at WashU, looking at TechCrunch and just like really trying to find them writing anything about Black people. So one is just writing the stories of successful people, celebrating them, being the first to publish about new funding, venture funds being raised, et cetera. And then the second thing was creating that space. So every year people can come together, you know, from all over the country, all over the world to be seen and to see each other and to reconnect, which helps accelerate that social network gap that you get when you're not in Silicon Valley. And then the last thing, more recently, we actually started a nonprofit called Blavity.org, just designed to more directly give back to Black entrepreneurs. So connect them to our clients, use our skill sets internally at the company to help them get their first press release out there, give them PR resources, help people figure out their pitch decks and connect them to VCs directly. And then we're also thinking about the creator economy next, You know, not just traditional venture-backed startups or small business owners, but also independent freelancers, solo entrepreneurs who are building their own media empires because they're content creators. How can we help them on the business side? I want to move into our last segment, which is audience questions. We have a question from Judy who says, Morgan, did you have any trouble motivating your team during the pandemic? And how did you help them overcome any burnout issues? A lot of people got burned out and a lot of people have resigned. We've had some a ton of churn, which is really difficult because it's out of our control to some extent. It's like, I get that you're burned out. I'm burned out. <laughs> I can't quit, <laughs> right? So I don't know that I have a good answer. I think burnout, unfortunately, in a pandemic and with the murder of George Floyd, we were all operating with adrenaline and that is exhausting. And I don't blame anybody for wanting to take a break or wanting to get out of Black media entirely, frankly, for some people, because it is constant coverage of trauma. It never ends. It feels like it never ends. That's my honest answer is that sometimes you do have to take a break. And that may mean quitting, resigning. It may mean doing something else for a bit and recharging. It may mean moving to the beach instead of being in the mix of it all. And I think everyone needs to make that decision for themselves. I appreciate you being honest about it. Um, Cause I think everything you're saying, I'm like nodding. I'm like, I hear you on every single one of those points and not enough CEOs and founders are talking about it. And I think it's tough for me as a CEO to not take it personally when people get burned out. You know, it's like, I've done everything that I could to try to make things reasonable. You know, we're not forcing people to come back into the office. We gave self-care bonuses. We gave people extra days off. We gave people self-care vacation days. We gave people raises. I mean, we've tried our best. And sometimes your best is like, literally still, there's nothing you can do to like combat systemic racism and trauma. There's no amount of money or time off that you can give somebody. Who else should we have on the show? So many people. Um, definitely one of my good friends, Melissa Butler from The Lip Bar. She's incredible and her story is awesome. She's a founder from Detroit and she's grown a huge beauty empire. Deepika, I don't know if you have her from Live Tinted. No, I'd love to. Also incredible woman of color. I think that there's a lot of things going on in the beauty world and a lot of new entrants. And I think there's also some women who've been doing this for a long time. And it's really important that we uh, hear their stories. Morgan, thank you so much. We are a huge fan of yours. And this is our second podcast together. So I feel like we're uh, old hats at this now. But thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. 
A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less.